AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From grandmothers who whispered in their baby girl ear, to fathers on dimly lit street corners instructing young soldiers to always keep their eyes open. You be queen. You were fire. You were passed through centuries on the hands of your daughters. They called you wisdom. Proverbs. On the backs of diamond-eyed schoolchildren who grew into hymnals recited by amethyst-holding urban philosophers who recited neighborhood commandments out of the windows of restored El Camino chariots to keep the warmth in their blood. Be wise. Be smart. Be black opal, brown quartz, bloodstone, and prayer. Be every form of gem. See, king told scribe, scribe told son, son told wife, wife told her daughter, and daughter told the ancestors, and the ancestors told me that you would come to give wisdom to thousands. They said you would come dropping gem, dropping gem. Welcome to another episode of the Dropping Gems Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for all the ratings and reviews and DMs and all of the things. I'm your host, Debbie Brown. This episode, uh, I have been looking forward to so much. (laughs) And I've been looking forward to specifically having a conversation like this for so long. Today on the show, in just a few moments, I will bring on our special guest, the one and only actor, director, humanitarian, Nate Parker. And there's an incredible film that is out and available now called American Skin. I know a lot of you listening have already seen this film. It's really taken the internet by storm. There are so many expansive conversations happening everywhere within our own homes, at the barbershops, within our communities around this film. And I had—I first had the chance, the opportunity, the gift of seeing this film about a year ago. I screened it in Hollywood, and I just remember so distinctly leaving that screening and just sitting in the car and needing to breathe and needing to uh, 
really calm myself. Uh, it brought up so much, especially as a mother, especially as a boy mom. And it really, for me, further intensified the internal dialogue that I have with myself about black male pain and all of the barriers that black men in the world, men of color in the world, um, have in front of their own access to themselves and their own ability to deeply experience their own love. And something we speak to quite a bit on this show, you know, we really get in the thick of trauma. We get in the thick of our ability to self-heal and self-love and self-accept. And, you know, so often I, I'm in thought with myself around the dynamic of our family structures and how to, for me, how to really create generational change and generational impact through relaying the foundation of the way that we feel about ourselves and starting that within our homes. And it's something that I really intentionally do with my son. And it's something that is uh, probably the driving force of my life. My utmost priority in my household is that my son knows his own love. He will feel his mother's love. Yes, I will engulf that baby all day. But him feeling his own love and him knowing his own worth of existence before he gets into the world is so important to me. So when I saw this breathtaking film that really speaks to the complex layers of a black man's ability or lack thereof to emote, to feel, to grieve, to be treated with reverence and respect, it floored me. So without further ado, I'm really excited to bring forward uh, the special guest of today. So welcoming to the show, the incomparable Nate Parker. Nate Parker is a director, actor, screenwriter, producer, humanitarian. He's focused much of his life and career on addressing social injustice and creating content that addresses disparities for marginalized communities around the world. He's known for his roles in the Denzel Washington-directed film, The Great Debaters, the Spike Lee joint Red Hook Summer, Beyond the Lights, and his role as slave insurrectionist leader Nat Turner in Birth of a Nation, Ooh. which he also directed. I had the great pleasure of being able to become friends with Nate over the last few years, and I don't even know if you know this story, Nate, but I will never forget the first time I saw the movie poster for Birth of a Nation. It literally stopped me in my tracks. Like, I felt it through my soul. And I remember I was sitting, I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in my living room, I was watching TV, and all of a sudden, the movie poster appeared on screen, and there was a commercial. And I was like, what the fuck? Huh? And I was just blown away, and I was like, I have to see this film. I have to see this film. And so I feel like I was calling the film to me. Um, and it was really funny because I was, you know, we have some mutual friends in the industry. And I was like, you saw an advanced screening? I need to see this. I need an advanced screening. And I was traveling. Um, I was at this symposium. And I got a call at the time, the radio station that I was at. I was in LA, but I was working in Houston. I got a phone call. And they said, hey, we want to send you to do the press junket to cover Birth of a Nation and to go to Canada but you need to leave tonight. And I was in the middle of this whole other thing. I was, it was like an 11-hour flight. It was insane. 
But I just said, yep, I'm going, yes, yep. So I went to cold Toronto with my L.A. clothes. I get there. I see the screener at night, and I just started bawling. I just started crying. And I remember I walked outside, and it was raining, and I called our friend Punch. And he and I stayed on the phone for two hours, and I walked in the rain. And we were just talking about the film and talking about you and talking about the world. And then I had the amazing opportunity um, to connect with you and meet you and, you know, learn from you and see your genius. So I'm so excited to have you on this show. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? I wouldn't miss this for anything. And um, I didn't know you left that night before. I know we, we met in Toronto and, and Punch reached out to me, who's, who's such a great brother. Uh, and he had such great things to say about you. And just connecting with you that day, I remember it was like a rooftop um, like restaurant or something. And we talked for a long time. And, it, and it's crazy because, you know, when you mentioned the, the poster and you mentioned the film, it, you know, art that is incendiary seems to get people's attention a lot quicker than mm. things that are, that are safe. So it felt like the, I'm so glad the poster was what it was because it feels like the nature of it may have even be responsible, been responsible for our, our connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it would, what really struck me about that film, at least for me and my purview, it was the first time I had seen something um, not just so bold, but it was like a reclaiming of power. It was changing the dynamic of how we viewed ourselves and how we told these stories. You know, all, all the films that were winning Oscars up until then, they were the slave films. They were the films that didn't have, you know, much to them, or it was all about liberation coming from an outside source. You know, it was the first time that it really felt like there was an unlocking of this inner well, you know, and, and I credit this film as being such a catalyst in, in a beautiful, subtle way for some of the conversations and some of the uprisings that happened afterwards. It really, I feel, was such a powerful reprogramming. Mm, thank you for saying that. It, you know, when I was, was doing my research around Nat Turner, uh, what I found in my research is that this particular insurrection was responsible in many ways uh, for the Civil War. You know, there, there, were, there was a lot of conversation around what to do with the slave problem. You know, there, there was the issue of taxes, there was the issue of property, there was the issue of preserving the union, um, but there was the issue of insurrection. Mm -hmm. And Nat Turner wasn't the only insurrectionist. There were plenty of people uh, who were revolting. There were, there were women who revolt, were revolting by poisoning food. Uh, there were just so, many, so much resistance that was happening that is undocumented yeah. uh, that you have to dig for because it speaks to uh, the, the, the stripping of humanity in, in ways that it has never been done in the history of the world. You know, people like to compare slavery to other forms and different, you know, time periods with different generations and different empires, uh, but never has there been slavery like uh, what is what has taken place in the United States of America. And I think a lot of that uh, has perpetuated the brokenness uh, that we that we are struggling through. <sighs> Uh, and the trauma, because yeah. we won't admit that we won't. I mean, you got to think, think of it like this. They literally changed the laws in this country. So if someone was born from, uh, you know, a, a relationship of, 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 I won't even call it a relationship, if, if, if a, a slave rape. owner yeah. uh, raped one of his, his property, they changed it. So she would, that, that, that child would take on the lineage of the mother 
and not the father. It's never been done in history. Why did they do that? So they could expand their property. Why? Because they stopped the mid-Atlantic uh, uh, slave trade. So these are things that, again, without honest confrontation, without truth, there can't be any healing. Yeah. You know, we, we, wanna, we talk about, you know, addressing trauma, but we really don't want to talk about all of the infrastructure, the things that have brought us to this place. And, and so yeah. with the film specifically, and a lot of the things that I do, I try to, you know, lay bare the truth behind who, who we are and what we have been as a nation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're going to get into the film in just a moment, but somewhere I really like to start is 2020, obviously very devastating year. Um, but a few mm -hmm. things happen that I find to be the hidden treasure of it all, which is really mm -hmm. fully and more deeply shedding light on specifically black male pain. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, really the beginning of that for me was when Kobe passed, really, um, I think that energy lent itself to an opening that hadn't happened yet, right? Like we know mm -hmm. the male connection to sports. We know um, some of the ways that that has been such a community builder for black men and also a space mm -hmm. of immense celebration and- And survival. And survival, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and generational growth real. and expansion. Yeah. And, you know, it's just such a big piece of the male puzzle and the male psyche. And so mm -hmm. for that to happen and a hero to be fallen in such a way, like an action figure really to be fallen mm -hmm. in such a way and it, a child involved in such a blow. So I say all that to say, you know, it really felt like that was um, as tragic as it was, almost a blessing because I think it ripened an opening for the hearts of men for what we were about to walk into, which is the pandemic that changed everything and also the social injustice that changed really the scope of the conversations we were having and the things that we're doing. George Floyd being killed the way that he was. Conversations around black vulnerability started to happen. And, you know, when you think of yourself as a black man who was able to rise in such an exquisite way and then able to come in and be of service to the world with your creative genius and your creative fire, how did you begin to cultivate that in yourself? Where did that healing begin? Where did you come into a place of being able to stand in your full being and tell these stories? I think it's, it's undoubtedly faith. Mm. Um, I think that there, there has to be acknowledgement of the creator in anything that we think that we're called to do, um, for me specifically anyway, um, because you know, just as a human being, um, the brokenness that you inherit, yeah. you know, the generational trauma that you inherit, there's so many things and being a black man being born in this country, uh, just waking up every day you're faced, you're carrying baggage. Just being born, you're carrying baggage. I, I can't think of a time where I didn't know mm. that I was an underdog just as a person with brown skin, mm. you know? And I think that when you're, when you're operating under that pretext, if you don't have mind, body and spirit in order, uh, you may find yourself in a situation of, of perpetual depression, yeah. you know, because you'll see you know, because, you know, faith is, 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 is believing in the thing that is not seen, right? The idea that, yes, I was born for a reason. I was created for a reason. Yes, that th th I believe there's a destiny for my life. Yes, I believe that there were gifts that have been given to me. Yes, I believe I stand on the shoulders of, of giants that have come before me. Now, how will I pull out of me uh, all the things that can institutionalize that support and, and, and laser focus it on something that can create a legacy for myself? And so mm -hmm. I take that back to, to, to faith. It's just knowing that like, 
the Lord has put me in a position, one, to do something that will, will change the order for my children uh, and my children's children. Um, and he's giving me, you know, in, in, in some ways a playbook, you know what I mean? Like, I think that the whole conversation around faith has become this weird and awkward, uh, monetized, politicized yeah. thing, but we've often, I feel like we've forgotten the vertical relationship that mm. we're supposed to have with the creator. You know what I mean? And as, as a Christian man, it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to kind of step into this space, then what does that mean for me? You know, what are my actions going to be? How am I going to live for other people? How am I going to serve? So I try not to look at how I might've, you know, pulled myself up and, and answered the call, but really how can I be a servant to those who I know are being marginalized, yeah. who I know are constantly being um, uh, uh, pushed to the, to the outside of society or, or being told that their brokenness is their own fault mm -hmm. uh, or being told that their, their, their symptoms are not indicative of a bigger sickness, but it's just indicative of their failures. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think the more I lean into faith and service, the more capable I am to stand up to adversity and to push through uh, anything that may feel like an obstacle to get to what I think might be, you know, the destiny that is that has been put before me. Mm, 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 mm. Something we really speak to a lot on this show um, that's a driving force in my life is really decolonializing wellness, um, but also being really clear about the colonialization that has taken place within how we feel about ourselves, how we mm -hmm. even seek help. Right? right, like the colonialization of therapy, of mental health, mm -hmm. like as these mental health conversations are being unpacked and we're really trying to empower the BIPOC community to seek out these services, right. it's so important because the piece, of, the piece of the puzzle that is not spoken to in these healing spaces is the complex post-traumatic stress. So That's that right. is everything else that lays as a burden on top of you, aside from the spiritual curriculum you entered earth for, as you are in your journey, as you are seeking God, as you are seeking self. And, right. you know, what, what does that look like for you? You know, how do you fill your cup? How do you refuel as a black man in this world, specifically in these times, as a father and as someone that knows they are called to show up in service? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, prayer. A lot of it has to do with um sewing into the things that I think are bigger than me, you know, mm. my, my children, I have five daughters, you know, um, and, you know, I have my nephew that I adopted and every day I'm asking myself, you know, when I'm laying, when I'm, uh, you know, on my deathbed and I'm surrounded by all the people that I've been connected to, what will, what will they think about me and, and my contribution, you know? Um, because at that, that, at that moment, all the fear, all the anxiety, all the things that, or obstacles when, when, when you were living through the moment won't matter. The only thing will matter if you have your receipts, you know? Mm -hmm. I always find it interesting when people, um, you know, we talk about 1968, which was a pivotal year for this country. Uh, so many things happened. And talking to people who were 21, 22, 25 during that time and asking them, what were you doing during that time? And it's funny because there's only one answer, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I was serving, I was serving the people. I was in the streets, I was, uh, making noise and I was raising hell, but the people that were doing nothing, that is something they can't undo. Mm. You know, so I think that there's a tremendous responsibility that I think pushes me to find and create space for myself to grow. And like you said, to fill my cup, you know, it's like, what am I going to do today? What am I going to write today? Um, 
you know, because I, I was making money won't be an answer when your kids ask you what you were doing. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with my children, you know, and, and as they grow up, they're inheriting a world that they did not ask for. Mm. You know, something my, my 22 year old, you know, had a conversation with me one time and she said something along the lines of, you know, this is crazy because I didn't ask to be here. Mm. You know, and it wasn't in a way that was negative, but it just stayed yeah. with me. Like, man, like we bring people, we bring children to this world often selfishly because we want a kid or because we we want that in our lives or we've 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 kind of mapped out this direction we want to go, not recognizing that we're literally bringing children into the world that are not asking to be to be here, and then we're expecting them to be able to operate in a way that is healthy, um, that a way is that in a way that's sustainable. Uh, in a way that they will be able to hopefully uh, bring positivity and light to their children. Mm. But they're all assumptions, right? They're all mm. assumptions. It's like, oh, they're going to be all right. I'm going to have kids. They're going to grow up. They're going to do that. Thing. I'm going to raise them. I'm going to rear them. But at the end of the day, we are they're literally inheriting the world that we're giving them. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. And I think um, the way I look at parenting, uh, especially parenting of black children, it you have to be so thoughtful. You have mm -hmm. to be so thoughtful in what type of foundation you want to instill in them. Like for me, the leading force of my motherhood is having a son that has access to joy. I mm -hmm. want my child to feel joyful and enthusiastic about himself and about the world, you know? Yeah. And so when I think of like some of the fibers of um, really re recalibrating how we experience our children or retraining ourselves into how we experience ourselves, you know, no matter what's happening, my son will be greeted with authentic mm -hmm. joyfulness from me. And, you mm -hmm. know, the way our nights end is all in service to prayer and affirmation. And, you mm -hmm. know, even though kids don't know all the words, it's like expanding their emotional language of what their feelings are and how they experience themselves. So like with Quest, it's like, you know, every night you are so loved, you are worthy. Yeah, and then kids hold matter. on to the words, you know, and he, mm -hmm. he starts running around the house. I'm worthy. I'm worthy, mm -hmm. you know, right. but giving them access, you know, for me, especially with black children, we teach them how to feel about themselves. So we have to make sure that that initial feeling that they walk out of the door for the first time with entering this really complex and complicated, deeply unfair world. Mm -hmm is a cultivation of love for themselves, of seeing God in themselves. Um, Definitely. Is yeah. What you said is very, very true. You said the word um, retraining. Mm. Uh, and I think, it, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, so often we forget that they're being programmed every time they, they, they open their eyes. They're seeing yeah. something that is, that is planting a seed in their spirit. And I think if we're not counter-programming, um, then, then we are positioning them to fail. Uh, because everything that they will learn about themselves from mainstream America, from, and we can talk about that, but everything, that, every image, every reflection they'll see of themselves, unfortunately, teaches them about their inferiority, yeah. you know? So it's like affirmation is critical. And, and, I, and I cannot stress the importance of what you said, because at that young age, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's like I talked to someone and they said, um, I was doing an interview, and they're all blurring together, but someone asked, you know, when do you start talking to your kids about that? Mm. <laughs> you know, um, and it makes me think about, you know, a, a few of my Jewish brothers and sisters 
and how they say, you know, as soon as you, you know, are old enough to comprehend, yeah, they're telling you about your history, about your position in the world, your relationship with God. And I'm very much in line with that. I think that for better and for worse, they need to know, you know, my, 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 I have a 10 year old daughter and we talk about race in a very real way, mm. you know, because she, she will intersect with it very soon. A lot of times, like when I, first time I was called, you know, the N word, I didn't go home and say, mom and dad, you know, I was called and this is, it was really, even at the young age it happened, I was, and I'm from Virginia, so it was very young, but it was really like, okay, mm. I felt the energy of that. What is wrong with me that I would be yeah. called a name that would make me feel so bad that I don't even really know what it means, you know? Yeah. yeah. So then when I got around to telling my mother, it was, okay, let's have that talk. But I wish I'd known earlier, Yes. you know? So I could have met it with affirmation. You know, I could yeah. have understood, you know, you don't understand ignorance in a, in a way that is intentional when you're, you know, seven, six, you don't really understand it. So these conversations are critical to our survival. Yeah. It's the lifeblood. God, yeah, so powerful. I asked um, a psychologist friend of mine once, uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated by trauma and mechanisms mm -hmm. for healing. Um, right. And I asked her, why is it that we each inherently, as children, interpret anything that happens to us that we don't understand as being unworthy or somehow being mm -hmm. less than or somehow mm -hmm. being not Shame. enough? Well, you know, it's interesting. The way that a child's developing brain operates is, she said this quote to me that shook me. She said, a child must blame or it will go insane. Mm. Because when you're a child, the only God you can tangibly understand is your parents. They are the mm -hmm. extent of your whole world and whatever access, however their lives look, whatever they give you allowance to. And so if you were to believe that something was perhaps wrong or unhealed about your parents or about your immediate structure in the world, you would be in a constant state of fight or flight as a child. You would die. You would have a heart attack as a kid. You could not be able to take on the load without emotional language development, all of the things, that something is wrong with the world. So you start training yourself to believe that something is wrong with you, and then you mm -hmm. layer and you layer and you layer. Um, and I think that's so indicative of the black experience and, and some mm -hmm. of the things that you really so powerfully, beautifully explore in your films. It's like, mm -hmm. what are all the other residues that are existing aside from this moment we're seeing on screen or happening with the characters? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a, um, a great book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Mm. If you get a chance, check it out. It's by Dr. Um, Joy DeGrat. And she talks about that just how so much of the trauma that we pass down to our children uh, is not, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from very specific programming for survival, mm. you know? Uh, and she speaks about how oftentimes the way our, our parents will talk to us about, you know, uh, uh, um, when they're talking to other people, you know, um, how's, your, how's your son doing? How's your daughter doing? Oh, I mean, he, he just, you know, he, 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 they're going to figure it out or he's not, he's, you know, like this kind of like there's there, we don't kind of speak entitlement and privilege into our kids. Yeah. It's kind of like we, we, we oftentimes slight them and don't know it, but it's something, but it's because it's what was, what happened to us, you know, you know, and, yeah. and, it, and, but we can't bring our, our parents because that's not the root either. That's still the branch. We go down to the root. 
um, in this book, she talks about how on the plantation, you never knew if your child would be taken away for their gifts, you know, or you never knew that they would be taken by an overseer for their looks. Um, so there was this constant, uh, this, this, this blanket you were covering your children with that to others denigrated them so they would lose interest. Mm. And it was done to protect them. And it's like, man, you know, like even, you know, beating your kids for touching something at a store or getting too far away from right. you. These are all things that the roots are deeply set in plant the plantation. And yeah. so unpacking that allows us to kind of open our open ourselves to a new way of exploring relationships with our children. Yeah. And sometimes for me, it's meant allowing them to, to mess up, allowing them to fail, allowing yes. them to make messes, allowing them to tear a store up um, and being okay with the fact that they're just learning the world yeah. in the way they're the white here. kids do. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I told this story once about being in a store with my mother and uh, I grew up, my mom was like, stay close to me, single parent household. You know, my dad passed away when I was young. So she was like, stay very close to me. Don't move, don't touch anything. Um, and I remember seeing this, this mother with her little white son walking down the aisle and he had his hand out on the cereal aisle and he was walking and all, he was about 10 steps behind and all the cereal was just crashing on the floor. All of it, it was just like, it was fun and funny. And I remember my heart just started beating so fast because I thought to myself, he's gonna get a beating. Like someone's gonna pick him up and beat him in, within an inch of his life, right? My trauma. Yeah. And his mother, whatever she was doing, I know she could hear, but she just turned around, didn't even look at the cereal and grabbed and was like, come on. And I looked up at my mom like, will you beat that kid? Like, so he needs to know. Yeah. But I was projecting, even as a child, my trauma yeah. onto that kid and yeah. that experience. Yeah. But now, as, now as, a, as a parent, I've learned to, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones, you know what I mean? Embrace yeah. all the things that I think were helpful uh, about my upbringing and the way I was raised and kind of be okay with letting some of the other stuff go and stopping the cycle, not because anyone was trying to hurt me, but because those tapes, those old tapes don't apply to me yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'm in control now. This is, this is my family. Yes. You know, this is my, this is my, uh, 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 um, approach to parenting in a way that is healthy and that inspires a certain level of privilege and entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. I want my child to feel privileged. You run this thing. Yeah. You can have whatever this is you yours. want. This is your world. That's right. Yeah. That's so, yeah. Hmm. So much, I think too, of our, you know, as we approach breaking down the structure, the family structures that slavery gave us that still feel mm -hmm. so prevalent in so many of our households, like to me, joy and pleasure are the road, are the road there. You know, like mm -hmm. we, we tell our kids historically, no, for no reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I like this. No. It's like almost like we are all taught to rehearse tragedy constantly, always mm -hmm. playing these loops of like the worst case scenario. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, that reprogramming is like, OK, but what's the best what's the best thing that could happen in this? Not what's the worst mm -hmm. thing. What is the best way that we can stand in this moment for the highest good of all concerned? Um, right. Yeah. So powerful, Nate. Let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about the film. Mm. Wow. The, the new one, the, the, the most recent one. Oh, my God. All right. American Skin. American mm -hmm. Skin follows a black Iraqi war vet who, after being denied a fair trial following the shooting death of his teenage son and only child by a white police officer, 
desperately seeks justice and accountability for his son's death. It's presented by Spike Lee. American Skin is written, directed by, and starring Nate Parker. The film also stars Amari Hardwick, Bo Knapp, Theo Rossi, Shane Paul McGee, uh, many, many more, Vanessa Bell Calloway, and it's now playing in select theaters and on all digital platforms. I bought it on a few platforms. I bought it on my Amazon, on my mm. Apple. Thank I was like, you. I'm gonna have it everywhere I could watch it. Um, yeah, it's, it's jumping. It's, uh, it's very, very, it's very interesting. Um, you know, we don't have a marketing budget, you know, and it's a small film, but man, the word of mouth has been absolutely insane. And yeah. the audience reaction, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting, you know, because we have, uh, you know, call it a, a, a 30% Rotten Tomatoes from, from, you know, several critics, call it five of them, I don't know. Um, but then we have, you know, a 96 from 5,000 audience members, which mm. is the highest score in all of Rotten Tomatoes for any film for an audience score wow. for a feature film. So, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, I made this obviously for the people, you know, I want yeah our voices to be elevated in a way that was unapologetic. And I wanted to make everyone who is complicit in the way that not only we are killed, but in the way that it is kind of uh, pivoted always into something that further traumatizes us. I wanted to hold everyone accountable for that um, and add to that conversation in a way that was real uh, and authentic. Yeah. And you know, with those critics, the way that I feel, it's like, if you don't get it, that says more about you than it does about the film. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not yeah. able to really because there's so many stories being told, we're always confronted with whiteness, like as mm -hmm. any any person of color of any background. It's like every film we ever saw was about whiteness, every demographic of whiteness, us. even the ones about black people are <laughs> you're about like, whiteness. You're, you're like, Gee, like wh wh when is it OK yeah. for us to tell our own stories? And to be honest, without a white man over my back telling me that to him, it didn't feel true. Yeah. You know, if I had a dollar for every time I was making a film and someone who didn't look like me would read the script or would watch a scene um, or he even hear a dialogue about a scene and say, that doesn't feel, you know, realistic. <laughs> You know me, you, you know me, know me like I and I have zero tolerance, which is why every project I go into, one of the things I fight for so desperately is creative control. Mm. You know, it's like people need to be able to tell their stories w w w without being inhibited. You know, it's like if we're telling a story about, you know, the, the wonderful women who've been fighting for the right to vote and all different. Look, there shouldn't be some man over their shoulder like, ah, well, say that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you know what I'm saying? And I think that we, ha that's because that's not art. It becomes instantly propaganda. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's not authentic to the people it's trying to serve. Um, and so, you know, I'm very aware and, and intentional about making films that speak to us mm. in a way that is real, uh, in a way that cannot be spun into, in, into, into some type of piece that makes everyone feel good when they leave. Yeah. That's not my, it's never my intention. Mm. Hold that thought. We are coming right back. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts What inspired you to specifically write this film? Um, and is there any significance to the name Lincoln Jefferson? Yeah, well, I'll answer the first question, then the second, but there, there's tons of significance. Um, I was inspired to write this film for, for a reason, for, for a specific reason is I got custody of my nephew from my sister, a beautiful young man. He was 13 at the time I got custody of him. He, he had come from the school system that I was in, mm. um, in for a couple of years in Virginia, Portsmouth, Virginia. And he had come and tested, you know, I went and picked him up and I asked him, Hey, you know, I'm going to change your life. Um, but it's not because you're better, you know, I'm putting you in a position that you can better serve the people that you're leaving once you have everything mm. that you need, brought him to be with me, put him in school and he tested into the fifth grade as an eighth grader, you know, 
Uh, and that was not a slight on his intelligence. It was a slight on the broken education system that we refused to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever, and I'm gonna digress for a second. Whenever we're talking about the broken you know, education system, uh, I might get myself in trouble, but I'm gonna say specifically with liberals, the conversation automatically spins into, yeah, this education system in, in America is broken. No, 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 no. I'm talking about for black kids. Let's be specific. Because if you have the ability to put your kids in a, in a private school, whatever color you are, guess what? They're gonna get a better education. Mm. You know, there's a massive divide in education when it comes to the school that is here in San Marino or whatever, in the school that is in, um, you know, off El Centro yeah. in, in South LA. And so in bringing him to the school immediately, I thought, man, like, what did I do? He's already, you know, he's gonna have a tough time getting on. He's the 90 people that look like him. The school was like, give us a shot at him. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure he catches up. And, uh, and he started to catch up very quickly and was very much involved with, with school. It was as if he was engaged in a different way. Mm. But I realized very quickly, 2014, August, when uh, Michael Brown was killed and his body was bloated and swelling on the, the hot pavement uh, that I'd kind of taken him out of the frying pan into the fire because now, while he wasn't in a, a situation where he was being miseducated, uh, he was in a situation where he had to ride his bike you know, through white neighborhoods. Um, and he is a dark skinned, tall, beautiful black man, young man at the time. And so as we're watching the news, he turns to me and says, Uncle Nate, what do I do if I get pulled over on my bike? And, you know, me being the, the, the fearless, you know, uh, uh, activist, I said, you call me and I'll straighten it out. I'll come there. And I was like, whoa, don't call me. Don't, don't grab your phone. Mm. Um, you know, just slow your bike down. You know, the second you can look at the officer, look at him, get your feet down, get your hands up. So it doesn't feel like, is anything happening that he can't see? As he's coming out, keep your eyes on him so you can see your humanity, your, your baby face. And of course he's looking at me with bugged out eyes, like, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, like all of a sudden, super strong Uncle, Uncle Nate has become this, this, this coward, you know? Uh, and it, it affected me. I felt very ashamed that I didn't have an answer for him, a real answer, wow. you know? Because what is the answer? Because you can do everything right and still get killed mm. just on a strength. So that began my journey into finding an answer. Now I've been to protests. I was there, you know, I went to protests when Eric Garner was killed and watched the Ubers and the cabs drive around the protesters. I was in Ferguson, as you know, um, I've gone everywhere, but I, but I went really demanding, but not trying to break down the psychology around where we were falling short as a, as a community. You know what I mean? Mm. What is the, the divide? Like, why aren't we, getting accountability why aren't why is why do we often hear the conversation around police brutality appropriated but we're not hearing it actually turn over into action that is changing the narrative um and that's where i i, I started to think well if i could if i could get everyone in a room and mm -hmm. kind of force our voices to be heard in an or else way um then we wouldn't have to be we wouldn't have to be screaming and crying but the only thing you see on the news is, you know, the tanks and the gas and the riots. Um, and that kind of, that kind of inspired this kind of Sydney Lamette, 12 Angry Men, uh, Dog Day Afternoon type vibe. You know, how do I hold people hostage and force accountability and do it in a way with imagery that people have never seen in the history of cinema?
hmm. or in real life, hmm. uh, for that matter. Say that. Um, you know, Come through, uh, pioneers. Uh, say that. Right? So, so that was kind of how I, I approached it. You know, it came. It was inspired by my my you know my uh, my nephew, son, and um, and then kind of grew into something that was you know became a feature. And then we we just we just went and shot it. You know, and I and it's like anything else when you're raising money. Uh, it's always hard to go to well-intentioned white people to get money that will inevitably create the type of equity that will maybe make them feel like they've lost something. Mm. Um, so, and it's mm. tough, you know, because you got to do it. You know, I'm, it, we're constantly begging for money from the very people we're trying to uh, get to understand what's happening to us. And maybe, wow. like I said, you know, um, so got the money, shot the film. And, uh, and then, you know, that before that, obviously we created this character. I cre I created this character, uh, Lincoln Jefferson. And, and I named him that really to point to what it means to be a patriot within the context of not being considered a human, you know, um, being someone as a veteran who went and fought on foreign soil for a freedom that he couldn't, uh, that his child could not enjoy because it was taken from him and doing Jesus. it with a name that to 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 some people call up heroism lincoln jefferson <laughs> but to people who have historical context um calls up more racist ideology and rhetoric you know we know jefferson had slaves we know how he treated his slaves we know how he treated his children um we we know about Lincoln that yes, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but not without uh, deep pre and intense pressure from Frederick Douglass. We know that he said with his own mouth that he didn't believe that uh, we were equal and that there was something that, that made us inherently inferior and that we would always be inferior. Uh, these, came, these words came out of his mouth, but yet and still we as a, as a, as a group uh, of people, not to, not to, you know, I know that, that we are um, not a monolith, but I, I speak when I, when I say black people in this context, I mean it to be, we are like stepchildren, you know, or foster children. We're, we're so often, we're so desperate to be accepted by individuals that refuse or by a, 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 a society that refuses to accept us, refuses, refuses, they may give us a job with their diversity initiatives, but they don't celebrate our differences. They don't, you know? Um, so, the whole idea of Lincoln Jefferson as a name was to specifically call out the, the desperation we have in being accepted in a, in, in a nation that refuses to accept or acknowledge our humanity. And it, regardless of the sacrifices we make, even, in, even with, with us assuming their identity, hmm. if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, anything that I do is gonna be specific. Uh, and, and that name was was very, very specific. And, and, and there's more meaning to it. And, I, you know, as we talk more in different times, we'll, we'll talk more about it. But that was on the surface. That's what I that was my entry point to mm. his name. Lord have mercy. You know, when I saw the film, it gutted me. It really, mm. really gutted me. It was incredibly done. It was powerful. Um, Thank you. I wanted to run out the house and, mm -hmm. you know get in these streets and do something. Um, it was, yeah. The thing that really, I think, gutted me was just the witnessing 
of this beautiful man's grief mm. and the witnessing of so many invalidated feelings. You know, like in such a layered way, one, the obvious, black in America, mm. but you go off to Iraq, you are literally a warrior, right? And you are using your body, literally your body and your life in service. You come back and he came back to a feeling of defeatedness. He -hmm. came back to a feeling of not being able to fully provide for his family, a feeling of, you know, being in a position, going from a a powerful leadership position to now having to be minimized in so many different ways um, or having to, you know, speak in code or kind of just like, Mm-hmm. Be a janitor. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but also, you know, the complex layers. He is a loving father, an expansive, open heart. Wants to have an expansive, open heart, but also has lived through so much. And that internal fight between opening and closing, opening to mm-hmm. love, closing, opening, closing. You know, um, and then for this experience to happen to him, um, and then you know. Everyone will see when they see this movie. Um, it just, it just for me really spoke to all the ways that black men deserve to be loved and healed and treated tenderly and treated mm. with reverence. You know that kind of that tenderness is just really missing. That that place of holding space for black male pain. You know, yeah. like even touch. Right? Like how often are people really deeply hugged? How often are black men having like nourishing, uplifting conversations that seep in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think I'm gonna take it back to how we opened this conversation. When, and when, when, you, when you said, you know, Kobe and what he means, what he st- continues to mean to black men. Uh, as a black man, he desperately loved his children he desperately loved his family. He desperately loved his team. He led his teammates. He spoke his truth. He had integrity. He had intelligence. He spoke different languages. Um, he had work ethic. Uh, he, had, he had inner strength and outer strength. Um, He led by example, mm. like all the quad- qualities you look for in a, in a black man. So many of those we saw in him. And it's, and it's not dissimilar to Chadwick Boseman passing. Mm. You know, um, black men, in my opinion, are low hanging fruit in this country. You know, we're the, we're, the, we're the last to be loved, the first to be mm. decimated. And that happens because in my opinion- That really uh, hurt to hear. Well, it's real. I think, yeah. and I, I think it happens because of our fractured relationship with the truth mm-hmm. about how this country started. You know, in the Willie Lynch letters we talk about in Great Debaters, you know, they would oftentimes take the strongest black man, the Kobe Bryant, the Chadwick Boseman, uh, and they would tar and feather him. And then they would uh, horse and quarter him and set the remain, remaining carcass on fire in front of everyone uh, of the other enslaved people to let them know just how quickly their lives could, could end, how quickly they could be snuffed out. Uh, and if you look at the prison industrial complex where so many of our strong, intelligent uh, black men are, 
it is a, a form of that per perpetuated lynching. That's where we are. We are. Take the father out of the household, take the strength from the community and you lock them up and you throw away the key uh, and, and, you, and, and you destroy their psyche and then let them out and then start whispering mental illness hmm. out of context. Hmm. You, know, you, you know what I mean? So when, when we talk about the black man and how he, is, how he is treated in this country, we can't forget about how it started. You know, I mean, geez, on the plantation, a black man couldn't ask for food. If they ran out of cornmeal, the black woman had to go to the house and ask for it and, have, and oftentimes do whatever it took to get the food to bring it back to the cabin. Why? Because it was impossible for a black man to speak in the presence of a white man and not offend him. Why? Because white men were completely insecure, as they should have been, with respect to the manhood of black men. It has not changed. It's the same reason. Well, it's like I always am blown away when I see an image of like, you know, I, I come from a sports background. That's how I am able to be in front of you, right? It was the beginning of my life. Well, you see 20 strong, huge black men huddled around a five foot two white man telling them what they're going to be doing. Or you'll see the owners in the NFL. Oh, you like that? Yeah, I figure you appreciate that. That's you my see jam. The white owner, you'll see the owner back like this during the games, making the little calls. Take him out. Take him to get him out of there. Yeah. And you yeah. see the, the bodies. And you're seeing the bodies doing this. <laughs> and these brothers are dying at 54, 55, all of them. You know what I mean? So when we talk about the destruction and the and the and the and the, the Kleenex like Qual, you know, way that we're thrown away. Wow. Of course, it's no, it's no wonder we are, we are guarded and we are fearful and we are paranoid and we are stressed and we are mentally ill. Yeah. Because this is our experience every single day. So and when you think about, Ill. right, and spiritually, yeah. when you think about this man, Lincoln Jefferson, who did everything right, he fought for this country, as you said, he gave his body, came back broken, and a lot of people miss that that was the reason why their relationship didn't work with his mm. with his wife, that he could not get it together. And it caused a stray. And but knowing the importance of raising a son, he said, is it OK, you know, that we share him? Why I instill the thing in him, the things that need to be instilled in him. In fact, I'm going to make sure he goes to the best school in, 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 in the area. In fact, I'm going to scrub the toilets of these very people that I know look down on me the children of those who, you know, you, you get what I'm saying? Yes. To do whatever I can to make sure he, he did everything right. Yeah. So many black men are doing everything right. Yeah. And they turn on the TV and all they see is, oh, the negative, you know, all, how, whatever the spin needs to be to get the traction, to get the, this is our every day. So at what, where's the breaking point? At yeah. what point does the, the, the black man say, you know, as, as Dr. King suggested, you know, no Lincoln, Lincolnian emancipation proclamation can bring about the strength and liberation that a black man and black woman need. They must reach inside of themselves. At what point do we just reach inside of ourselves and say, all right, bet, enough is enough. My life doesn't matter. We're going to get some justice. Hmm. Because he was a good, it wasn't, he wasn't some dude that was smoking weed before he ran yeah. up in there, you know, what I mean? as white men over my shoulder may have you know, suggest he didn't, but you know what I mean? Like those are the kind of notes yeah. you get. Like, what if he's a really a street guy? And what <laughs> if 
What makes him redeeming is that uh, he's just a good man that loves his son. And, yeah. and, and it's dealing with the brokenness of, of rejection mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a patriot. Mm-hmm. There's no one, more, no one more patriot than he was. Um, but I wanted to tell that story and do it in a way that anyone could identify. All of us got children. All of us love our children. You know what I mean? Like, but can you identify with this man and the justice he needs and the accountability that needs to take place? Because I think if, if you can identify with him, then you have an entry point into the conversation and the discussion. And if you identify with the discussion, then it will stay with you. If it stays with you, it'll spill out into life. And it spills out into life, you'll have conversations with the people in your life that don't understand what Black Lives Matter is all about, yeah. what Brian Stevenson is talking about, what color of change is trying to achieve. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So the whole point of the of the, that whole movie is just a, a bounce pass hmm. toward the shot. It, all, all it is is a setup for this type of conversation. If it takes me to make a movie for you to want to interview interview me, for this to go out to your audience. For them to think about like, man, let me see this film. Then to engage their white friends or engage their police friends, have them watch and have a real discussion about internal accountability as well as external accountability, then so be it, right? Yeah, yeah. Quick note, you've actually been on my interview bucket list for four years. So it wasn't just this film. You were on my, you've been on my list, Um, but it's really just the way you are in the world, you know, and your creative brilliance and your faith and, um, I'm glad for this movie because it's been the best vehicle for me to be able to get you in front mm-hmm. of a mic. Um, you. you know, I want to be respectful of your time. I want, but I have a couple things to touch on. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, American Skin, American Skin really speaks to black male pain being invalidated by white supremacy, by mm-hmm. patriarchy, by mm-hmm. injustice, and mm-hmm. we know that not being seen by the world that we live in is so profoundly harmful to our own self-image. So how do you love yourself? Take away the service. Mm-hmm. I'm very clear how actively you are showing up for the world. You are showing up for mm-hmm. your family. How do you love you? That's a tough one. I mean, um, I don't know. I don't think about myself as often in, in that context. I think I don't know what I am outside of service if I'm mm-hmm. keeping it real, you know? Um, you know, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, I'm, I'm, it's like a Rubik's cube of trying to figure out how I can contribute um, to legacy, how I can, t- you know, to my children, to, to your children, to Quest. Like, how can I use whatever power that is in me to shift it, this whole thing so when I'm gone, it will be, it will have, I will be, I'll be able to say that I was here, you know, that, that I didn't waste, you know, you know, these functional hands and this Mm. functional mind. Um, You know, maybe it seems like I'm being evasive. I'm not trying to be, No, Uh, but I don't, you know, I, but I do think it's important to note, especially for listeners, there is also some trauma response woven into that. You know, Um, Mm. we were not naturally taught how to love ourselves just being, Mm-hmm. alive on earth regardless of you know demographic background we're not right. taught to love ourselves in any way we're not taught to feel any of our feelings in real time right. and we are taught to suppress constantly mm-hmm. suppressing our own joy suppressing pleasure suppressing lightheartedness everything feels like for our own protection it has to be outward projecting um mm-hmm. 
And that's one of the reasons I, I love meditation, but that's a whole nother conversation. Well, it's true. And we've talked about that before. And I, and I, and I want to get into, into, into meditation. I want to do more of that. It's funny because um, in the new film that I'm doing, one of the things I found in my research is um, when people are in, uh, specifically in solitary confinement, I'm doing a film about solitary confinement oh my God. Uh, and the inhumane aspects of that. But in my research... <sighs> One of the guys was saying how when you are in a place of 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 being dehumanized or being marginalized or there's grave injustice happening, the only way to survive is to have a mission, mm. you know, to to set your sight on something and sprint toward it as fast as you possibly can. He said mm. it passes the time, but allows you to kind of dodge traps of the enemy. Uh, and it really hit me because I feel like it spoke to the prison of being a black man in America. Wow. You know what I mean? And how you can't go anywhere you want to go. Hmm. You can't open any door you want to open when you want to open it. Oftentimes you do have to deal with gatekeepers constantly and people who are not for you constantly. I can remember even being, you know, in college and thinking to myself, damn, like, you know, I, I went to a PWI. Um, I didn't go to HBCU, a predominantly white institution. And that feeling of like, dang, like every, every single day I have to be able to code switch and talk to white people uh, and teachers and professors and whatever. And white kids will never know what it's like. They can go their whole time and never have to talk to a black person. Their entire, and the football team is the reason why this whole place is here. It was like, I just, all these things. But when that, that brother said that about the whole idea of finding a mission, I feel like so many of us as black men, once we realize that the game is fixed, we stop thinking about ourselves we just think about who the game is hurting and how to break the game hmm. that's that's all i think about all day long Zeb. Yeah. i promise you all i think about all day long is how to break the game how do i subvert the game how do i flip this on its head so i don't have to feel guilty when i die or shame when i die that i my kids inherited a a a, a, a system you know a, a systemically racist and oppressive system that is going to beat them like it beat me how do i turn their pain into a stick so i do need to think more about i mean the things that give me joy are just being around my family you know what i mean like people ask i remember when the pandemic hit and people were like um you know how are you how are you sheltering i was like i've been sheltering since the 90s like this is <laughs> this is my style i love being home like i'm a home body like wake up on Saturdays, every Saturday is home improvement day. I'm painting, I'm fixing stucco, I'm building stuff. Like I built a tree house in the back. Like I'm all about home, but even that is service to my, to my, to my wife and children. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I've really got to think more about how to, in the same way that breaking my kids out of that way of thinking about how the world is not for them. I think black men, if I can so boldly speak for black men, some of us, I think that there should be some work maybe around experiencing joy separate from the the trauma, you know, yes. giving yourself, cause I don't, I, I have a hard time giving, I have, I get guilty when I give myself a break. You know, I try to write films that don't speak to our circumstance. And those are the only times I get writer's block yeah. because I'm like, damn, like I could be using this time to you know, and and that us. guilt is the it's the old programming and loops of the oppressor and of mm -hmm. colonialization. You know, like I think about when I think of like my biggest 
deepest dream for black men. Um, it's mm. that they are just really allowed to experience themselves as tender and soft sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, to it's be hard like, though. No, it's, it's hard. It's incredible. It's because, the fight of the life. Like, because they, well, the enemy is always looking to jump. I mean, like even like I'm getting something done in my house, you know, and I live in a decent neighborhood. And just even when, you know, one of my neighbors said one of the most racist things to my nephew that you can imagine. And then I had to deal with that, you know, or like when people come to my house, like I had someone even ask me, like, what do you do? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, how it? Looking at their house, looking at my house, looking at their house, looking at my, or just, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, you're never, ever, ever free yeah. from the, the, the ignorance from the white supremacy, it's so pervasive that but you it always does need to create be on a guard. freedom. It, that's the thing that I think is so important um, that we start mm. to expand in our communities is that when you have access to that like internal battery of love, mm-hmm. it creates this almost galaxy in your chest inside of you, and so there mm-hmm. is this. It's almost like a liberation from your cells outward, mm-hmm. from the inside out, and so by cultivating that and spending a little more time with that space. It does. It, well, it doesn't change the system, but it mm-hmm. does change how we're able to show up for ourselves in the system and how we're able to find other things to think about and prioritize. You know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it's just yeah, you know, I, hear you. I, I, hear you. I when I when I look at it right when I and keep in mind another one of our mutual friends. I have this conversation with him all the time, Charlemagne, um, mm-hmm. and I got him meditating. But mm-hmm. um, you know. To me, that is the only way we actually create structural change within our family systems. Mm. That is the way we change generational trauma. That is the way we change our ancestral trauma is for us to radically love ourselves and not love ourselves and see our worth through service or through providing Mm. or through productivity, but love ourselves because we exist and we're worthy irregardless. Mm -hmm. That's a journey. That's a journey. Yeah. Because I would, I would not to play devil's advocate, but this. You're right. It's just but. sometimes I didn't say but I said it's just. So I'm adding, I'm adding on. It's just sometimes dangerous uh for me personally to step too far off the road. Um, you know, when Jackie Robinson had a great quote, he said, A life only matters and the impact it has on others. You probably wouldn't agree with that. No, but but, well, it depends on the definition of impact, right? Because Mm -hmm. I feel that I have impact on people through the way I love myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that I love myself and the way that I allow myself to radiate my lessons and my love gives people permission to want the same for themselves. Just that Mm -hmm. planting of a seed, you know? Um, I like that. Yeah. 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 Look, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. I love that. I love that. (laughs) We'll get you there. Very optimistic. <laughs> you know, and I don't even know if it's optimism. The thing is, I just have an optimism that I will always be enough and I'll always mm-hmm. keep going. I don't mm-hmm. have, my optimism isn't placed in outside sources, but I try mm-hmm. to just keep that little like inner oven burning for myself, Absolutely. regardless of the significant challenges um, in I my life that. and in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, before mm-hmm. you go, it's funny because that I feel like that is, you know, that is everything that I teach my, 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 my children, my girls, you know, self-love, self-care, self-love, self-care. It's just as a black man. Yeah. And like I said, I, we are not a monolith, so I'm not speaking for everyone, but for me personally, it's sometimes hard living in this country. It feels like to reflect inward too, too much 
is to forget what's happening outside. Yeah. And I know that's not the case, but that yeah. is the journey. I think that's the Absolutely. journey. That's the journey. Yeah. What, what were you going to say? What were you going to say? Uh, aside from yes, no. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think, you know, the the amazing part about a healing journey and about whatever journeys we find ourselves on internally, we're on them for our whole life, right? So it's mm-hmm, just like right. a constant practice of like I'm in pursuit of self-mastery, but every mm-hmm. day is me practicing that or attempting right. that, you know. But what you said is so accurate. But mm-hmm. I I think for everyone listening, especially the guys, um, mm-hmm. you know, I would just really play the role of like observer. Like just getting curious about ourselves and why we believe what we believe, but specifically why we relate to ourselves in whatever way we relate to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Just starting that dialogue of being curious and be like, mm-hmm. why do I talk to myself like that? Or mm-hmm. when was the first time I started to feel that way about me or what I did or didn't deserve? You know, mm-hmm. that's so funny. Not in a, and, I don't mean, and I'm not saying it in a way that's condescending. I mean, it's like it's true. It's true. You know, you know, you my internal monologue is like this. All right, get up. <laughs> All right, let's go get it. All right, cool. Bet. All right, let's. All right, let's do that. No problem. No problem at all. No problem. Mm. All right, Nate, let's go. Like mm. it's literally like grit, grit, yeah. grit. Let's go. It's it's. I've had very few conversations where I'm like, huh. Oh, so, yeah. mm. how do you feel, honey? You know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Yeah, you'll I mean, probably guess, do it like this inside. You'd be like, hey, Nate, how you feeling? Listen, bro, like, don't matter how hey, you bro. feel, go get it. <laughs> <laughs> don't matter how you feel, go get it. <laughs> but yeah, that's, I think there's a lot of, again, a lot of, a lot of trauma um, yeah. just in general. And, uh, you know, even for your listeners as a, you know, and, and, and I think it's, it's healthy to be open. I think that's why I'm even having this conversation for all the, for all the brothers that are, that are listening specifically. I do believe that all this work isn't for nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that we do want to see a place where our kids have a healthier environment uh, and they don't have to worry about being killed in the streets or they don't worry about their brains, their minds being killed in the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, pursuing some, some, pursuing self-love I think can maybe help us live longer because black men live, you know, our life expectancy is lower than everyone's. You know, yeah. um, and when we talk about with COVID and pre-existing conditions and, you know, uh, heart disease and diabetes and all the things that, you know, just the things that are just perpetuated by stress. Yeah. It is stressful, dude. It is stressful being in this planet and, and recognizing that, you know, we are the, the wretched of the earth in the eyes of so many. But yeah. knowing at the root, we are the original and we are the stronger. <laughs> you know, you, you get what I'm saying? Yes, like there's, yes. it's the opposite when it comes to our capacity. Yeah. Uh, but that's the journey. That's the journey. Yeah. That's the journey. And it could be so worthy um, to, for everyone to just look at, you know, it's not sustainable to be at war with the world and at war with yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not sustainable. And that doesn't lend itself to really the freedom of the intergenerational trauma the ancestral trauma that um, we have been waiting our whole lineage to get mm-hmm. out of. And fighting our whole lineage, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay, so American skin, it is in all the places now. Um, I saw mm-hmm. a beautiful video of Diddy crying after he saw this mm-hmm. film. I saw LeBron tweeting it out and talking mm-hmm. about how impactful, like the way that this film has been received has been so powerful. 
so mm-hmm. powerful. Um, and I feel like this film is just, it's really being savored. You know, mm-hmm. it is creating so much dialogue within mm-hmm. families, within communities. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's so powerfully changing the narrative. Mm, that's the goal. Even on the <sighs> bottom of the poster, it says, time to change the narrative. You know, like this is not acceptable anymore. You know, Dr. King said, we must be dissatisfied. Like in every, we must be dissatisfied. And, and what does it mean to look and feel, feel and act dissatisfied? Mm. You know, there needs to be pressure. There needs to be resistance um, and the type of resistance that can't be ignored, you know? And I think the fact that we're in every barbershop right now, everyone's talking about it, in every barbershop, every beauty shop, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? On the, your, your job spot, on the basketball courts, on the football fields, because that's how we address subjugation. You know, we get into our little cells and we say, how do we feel about this? Like if this is, if we can, if we have to be honest about where we are right now, then, and, and what we saw in this movie is true, then what is our part? Are we complicit and part of the problem? You know, are we a part of the solution? If we're part of the solution, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be a journalist who is part of the solution? Hmm. You know, you do it every day. You know, the spiritual solution, you're, 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 you're kicking them out every day. What, what does it mean as, a, as an athlete to be a part of the solution? What does it mean as a, as a writer, director, producer? What does it mean as a businessman, yeah. businesswoman? What does it mean as a politician to be part of the solution? As a parent. Because as a parent, yeah. boom, it's all, we are at an impasse. And mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, technology is a wrecking ball. It's taking things that would take a year to do before the type of mobilizing you, know, you think about the mobilizing out, out of the, the bus boycott that took real work like that can be done you know if if if, if rosa parks had facebook or you know if, if harriet had you know what i mean twitter we'd be free yeah you know, so, <laughs> yo meet you me know, back here i'm gonna be there yeah. at <laughs> three o'clock flash mob boom everyone gets the information at the same time like young people have it right now they have the the yeah. ability to move and mobilize quickly. We saw what happened with Reddit and GameStop. Like technology can literally topple the Republic. Yeah, yeah. We're, we saw what happened January 6th at the Capitol. We saw that they've been talking about that for how long over social media and in their yeah. own groups, circles. Like where we are right now, from a standpoint of resistance for people that look like us, that are marginalized like us and allies of our journey, we, there are things that can happen very quickly. So I hope that this film is just, it's not, I'm not a savior and the film is not the answer, but I hope that it, it is a part of, this, of, of, of the conversation that leads us closer to the solution. Yeah, yeah. As we close out this show, Nate, um, I like mm-hmm. to leave our listeners with what I call soul work. And mm-hmm. so um, this will be a journaling prompt, but I'd like to invite you to answer this prompt as our final moment. Sure. What do you wish that you were told or that you knew about yourself as a black child? What do I, what do I, I, I wish I was taught or told about history that started before slavery. Hmm. I came into it so late. And I think that's hmm. maybe why I'm so desperate when it comes to our freedom is because I feel like I wasted, you know, 18 years of my life. Uh, pursuing on a hamster wheel when it Mm. came to trying to figure out how to be happy and how to be free. So I truly wish I'd learned, it would have contextualized my religion. 
it would have contextualized my circumstance where I lived and why I lived that way. Mm-hmm. It would have contextualized how I was treated by teachers and how, and how my, my classmates were treated by teachers. And I wouldn't have blamed, as you said, children blame. I wouldn't have blamed myself and us for things that I knew had, that had been done to us. You know, like when you speak, you speak as a queen. You don't speak as an enslaved person. You know, like, and anyone that's ever sat in front of you hears that, right? And I think that, that that is a connection to the ancestors. That is a connect, you know. And the funny thing about time is that we were only enslaved for that long. That's it. Yeah, seconds the on the us. evolutionary scale. In, 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 in with civilization, so to speak, right? That's it. And all the rest, we were top shelf. Hmm. But no one teaches you that in this country. You know, the second you're learn, you, you, you know what it is to be, to exist, you're taught just to survive. Yeah. You know, so I do wish that earlier on in life, I was told about the legacy of who we were as the original man. Um, I think it would have impacted a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Life. That your feeling of personal power had, had nurturance to it you know, that there was this... That it had been done before. Yeah. That we were not reinventing the wheel. That we were not by barbarians, but the people who had done that to us were the barbarians. Mm. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, um, this is a great quote Mm -hmm. from Oscar Wilde, where he says, the United States is the only country to go from barbarianism to decadence without civilization (laughs) in between. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This this only country (laughs) went from barbarianism to decadence. Just like that, and never had to deal with being civil. Yeah, this whole this whole country why. is built on like sociopathy. You know, when behavior <laughs> doesn't meet actions, yeah, it's yeah. like we from its inception there was this this bizarre, overgrandized claim that we were all equal, and no mm-hmm. one was except for white mm-hmm. males. But it's except written for the on paper. That signed the paper. Yes, and now the yeah. Constitution, our Supreme Court, is built to uphold the Constitution of something for that was never people, real. Yeah. For those people that signed that paper. Yeah. Those people that signed that paper got everything that they wanted. Everything. Everything. And we didn't sign that paper. Hmm. And I don't want to have signed that paper. That's the thing. I well, we're about yeah, to rip up the it's paper. A whole nother, so. It's a whole, yeah. But that's the thing. <laughs> at least figuratively. Yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. Mean, it's a whole other. Well, mentally interview. and emotionally and like, yeah, the way that we um, hold things within ourselves, not going by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want your team to get mad at me. Um, we could talk forever. We could. This so has been great. The journaling prompt for everyone for this episode, your soul work, is just spend some time today really um, just savoring in your own mind of things that you wish you had been given access to as a young person and how you can show up for yourself with that information more fully right now. Nate, you are a king. You are an incredible man. Um, You are seen so clearly. I am so grateful for your life. I am so grateful you exist. And how lucky are we? How -hmm. lucky are we to have you and your creative genius and all your offerings to the world? Uh, Really grateful for your time today. Grateful to know you. Thank you you for creating space for us. You know, we we, we, (laughs) so often when it comes to this type of thing, we're kind of propped in front of people that don't look like us and kind of given the task of, getting them to understand our experience. It always feels good mm. to sit down with someone that that can connect with you on a soul level um, because they are you, you know? So I appreciate you, appreciate your time. Thank you.
always. Hey, find me on social. Let's connect. At Debbie Brown, that's Twitter and Instagram, or go to my website, DebbieBrown.com. And if you're listening to this show on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And send this episode to a friend. Dropping Gems is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. It's produced by Tribble and me, Debbie Brown. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.